301. 301. It's not 401. That's graduate. You're, gonna, you're a senior now. You get out. This is 301 level. It's not 101. 101 level is pretty basic, right? That's where you're teaching them sort of, here are the basic steps for how to do this. It's not 201. It's 301. It's that level where you start to challenge them to apply what they know. When you start to take 301 classes, they stop feeding you the answers, and they just start feeding you the questions. And you're then supposed to put together what you've already learned into the package that answers those questions. This is discipleship level 301. 301. Jesus and the disciples in this particular day, you remember the story, right? Um, there's, there's some things that have gone on that have led Jesus to look for a place far away. So the story actually starts in another town. It starts with another event. Jesus and his disciples are fleeing. At least that's what the disciples think. They're trying to get away. They're trying to get away to a, a, a quiet place. You see, what precedes this story is the death of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is beheaded. Some of you may remember, those of you who are Bible scholars, know that Herod has him beheaded in the prison as a, uh, as a gift for his stepdaughter. And uh, he, he gets this, takes his head. There's there are these pictures of it all over the place. If you, you almost can't enter a gallery in Europe without seeing some picture of John the Baptist's uh, poor head being carried around. It's just in lots and lots. I, why these guys thought this was the thing to do the pictures of, I don't know. But there are as many pictures of this as there are of Jesus in most galleries that are covering Christian topics. So he has this delivered to this young girl and, you know, all, you know the, the, the horrors of the story. But if you remember the story, this, this, this report to Jesus actually takes place when he's at home. He's at home in Nazareth. In, in chapter 13, which is just preceding this, in chapter 13, last couple of verses, when Jesus had finished, finished his, uh, his telling of parables, finished what he was doing in another place, he returned to Nazareth, his hometown. His hometown. My hometown is Lisbon, Ohio. Lisbon, Ohio. If you've heard of it, raise your hand. Other than from me. Okay. You've heard of it? Without me? Wonderful. Are you from Ohio? Man, we'll have to talk later. I was actually on this trip that Brenda and I were on. We were traveling. And I, there was actually a man on this trip with us. There were 200 people on the whole boat. 184 passengers, there was one of those passengers who was not from Lisbon, but was from the next town up, Salem, Ohio. I was born in Salem, Ohio. We had this little little moment, Ohio people sort of, oh, wow, look, we're together. There's some folks here from where I live. There's some folks from my home. My hometown is Lisbon, Ohio. It's literally just a crossroads anymore. There are, there's hardly no manufacturing. There's hardly anything there. It's just a crossroads and a courthouse, a post office, and a diner, one of those really cool, shiny diners. So if you go, go to the main square, check out the shiny diner. It's been really polished so people will stop. Lisbon, Ohio. Jesus went home. When I used to go home as a little boy, when I used to go to Lisbon, Ohio with my family, every couple of years we would make the trek across the country. And see, we usually could get through Nebraska without breaking down. I don't know what's going on with Ken. I don't know what's going on. We could get right through Nebraska without breaking down. In fact, back then there was no speed limit in Nebraska. So we got through Nebraska. We, we, the big, I remember as, my, as a kid riding in the car, and we used to drive these big cars that kind of floated. Do you remember cars that floated? You're old then. Cars don't do that anymore. They all have these little hard tires, little hard systems, like bang, 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 every, every bump you feel. 
We, we had one of those cars that floated it. It was a Monaco steak and rack. It was awesome. Forest green, fake wood paneling down the side. Seven passengers. Before there was an SUV, there was the station wagon. Yeah, yeah. Those of you who've never known a world without SUVs, they haven't always been. There was the station wagon. This station wagon had seats that flipped up in the back. So my brother and I would sit in the back of the Monaco, cruising along at 90, 95 miles per hour across nothing Nebraska, watching the world. And we thought we were so cool looking out the back while everyone else was sitting in the front. Then, amazing amazing thing of all things, when we got sleepy, we laid the back seat down and we went to sleep. How sketchy was that? We didn't wear seatbelts. <laughs> we never wore seatbelts. And in that back of that giant station wagon, bouncing through Nevada like they're through Nebraska like this, but there were Three kids and usually one of our parents sleeping while the other one drove. Man, if we ever hit the wrong bump, we'd have just been a, a, a tossed salad back there. Jesus is going home. When I went home to Lisbon, one of the first stops we made always, the first day or two when we were there, we would go to see my Aunt Barbara. And when I came into my Aunt Barbara's house, I knew what was coming because she prepared for me. I don't know how I got to be a favorite, but I was glad to be. She had eight kids, and I was her favorite. I don't think her kids were as favorite as I was. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. When I would go into her kitchen, I could smell freshly baked bread. You know that smell, right? I used to have a job where I worked next to a bakery early in the morning. I loved it walked into her kitchen, the smell of freshly baked bread. And my mom, I think, was calling ahead or something, telling her, you know, this was a landline. (laughs) Calling ahead, letting her know I was there, we were coming because it was ready when we got there. She would be pulling loaves of bread out of the oven, setting them up on the counter. You have eight kids, you make a lot of bread. And so she she would put this bread up on top of the stove. But when I got there, she would pull one off, set it on the table, and start cutting. Because I, I, she knew what I wanted, but she was always ready for me. She'd cut off a big chunk of her freshly made homemade bread. She'd get out the peanut butter, and she'd lather that baby up. And all that gooey, delicious, peanut buttery flavor would kind of melt on that hot baked bread. It was probably terrible for me. It's probably still sitting in my colon somewhere. But it was awesome. I loved it. And every time we went back to home, when we went back to our hometown, this was hometown greeting. Jesus went home to Nazareth. We don't allow Jesus to have a hometown. But let your imagination, let your imagination catch this. Mary's first days coming home. Mom's in the kitchen hearing from the, the disciples, you know, Jesus seems to drop in sometimes. Hearing the, the noise of Jesus and the disciples out talking in the house, it's not that big a place, typically one, two rooms. 
Jesus and the disciples wandering through the shop looking at things and tools and Jesus talking about things that he's made and showing them what's there in the shop and stop telling them stories about his dad. Mom's in there. Preparing Jesus' favorite meal. Making the thing he loved the most. She's working on the bread. She's working on the meal. She's working on all of it. And he's got... 12 hangers on, so she's got to prepare a big meal. And Jesus starts to smell that smell. Like that homemade bread, it smelled and just grabbed him and drew him into it. Comes into that, to that kitchen, sticks his finger in the pot, puts his hand flat. Yes, I do believe Mary slapped Jesus' hand. Finally, the meal comes, they sit down, they gather and eat. If it's traditional to the area, he's taking pieces of, of bread, torn off, dipping it in the food, eating the food with his hands. The disciples gathered around, talking about how wonderful his mother is as a cook. Jesus saying, I grew up on this meal. Man, this has been my favorite thing I can remember. When I was a little boy, my mom used to my dad used to ask for this every Wednesday. This is what we ate Wednesday after Wednesday after Wednesday. I love Wednesdays because this is what we ate every day. Jesus is there at home with his family and his friends and his brothers and his mom. Jesus is home. Home time with Jesus. And he gets, he gets some news. Well, uh, before I talk about that. That Sabbath he goes to the to the to the synagogue and he begins to speak. He, he goes and he starts to help people around the community. And the Bible says the people of Nazareth were so familiar with their hometown boy that they refused to believe him. In fact, they were deeply offended by him. Deeply offended by him. He had become some uppity prophet. And here he was. Who do you think you are, carpenter's son, coming in here and talking to us? know you. We know where you came from. Don't be coming and bringing your prophet stuff in here. Jesus told them a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown. Sometimes home is tough. I love this line. It's always been one of my favorite lines in the Bible. So he did only a few miracles. I'd be good with a few miracles. Would you? Just a few miracles would be cool with me. You know, I, if I was just in town and I did a few miracles. Jesus did a few miracles there because of their unbelief. The tragedy of this statement is that he could have done so much more. Imagine the people in town he wanted to tell. The old men he'd known for years. Injured, falling off a building. He, gosh, he just wanted to touch him, heal that leg, and take away the pain. The person who begged at the corner, it was like there's one corner in this whole town. The person who begged at the corner who just wanted to touch and heal and take away the need. The person who lost their sight, whose eyes he wanted to see open and flash open. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't. Imagine what might have happened had they said, we know this guy, but this isn't the same guy we're talking about. 
Jesus, he's home at Nazareth. It's been great being with mom, but it's been tough. Tough trying to be possible. And then that peace. Matthew has in his recollection that this is the place where Jesus heard about John. He's home. They go down the streets. John's disciples go looking for where they might be, and they find him. You know, the houses in Nazareth at the time, they're, a lot of them built out pieces of caves. And since Jesus is not a, probably a wealthy man, it's likely his is just like one of those. A, a, the back of the house, the interiors of the house are a limestone cave. And then on the, on the front of it, his dad had built additions to cause a house to grow right out of the side of the hill. And they find that hole in the hill that belongs to Jesus' family. They come up, knock on the door, the door is open. Greeted by one of the disciples, they say, we want to talk to Jesus. We need to talk to you. They go inside the house. Tears are running down their face. And they say to him, Herod killed our master. Your cousin John is dead. News reverberates across the house. Because John is not just Jesus' cousin. John is a member of Jesus' family. This is Elizabeth's son. This is Mary's favorite aunt's little boy. And he's been murdered by this upstart king, Herod. The story is told. It's explained what happened is his stepdaughter came in. They were having this drunken party. She pleased the crowd. He made this stupid promise. And she asked for John's head and they gave it to her. And the heartache just rolled deep. The disciples realized that being with Jesus is actually dangerous. John's disciples are trying to figure out what to do because they don't know where to go. They have no one to follow. They don't, do they follow Jesus? Do they follow someone else? What do they do now? Jesus is home. His mom says, son, are you sure what you want to keep doing? Are you sure? You've seen what just happened. You've heard about it. Are you sure you want to keep doing this? This is dangerous what you're doing, going around preaching like this. It's dangerous. Are you sure you want to do this? His brothers are like, yeah, man, don't, don't do this anymore. Just stay here in Nazareth. Just stay with us. At least let things cool down for a while. The scripture tells us that as soon as he heard the news, he left. imagine it would have been harder to leave if he stayed for longer. Because your mom's argument would start to break your heart. Your mom's tears would start to really weaken your resolve. Your brothers, who knows, they might strap you to your bed. As soon as he heard the news, he left. He left. And if you pick this story up, it's covered in all four Gospels. If you pick this story up in the other Gospels, you find out that um, 
the other, the other uh, gospel writers remember that between Nazareth and, and the next event, the one I'm going to talk to you about next, between those two events, they, they did some other ministry. They went to other places. They talked to other people. There are a lot of events that they describe in there. But, but the point is Jesus left immediately. He left Nazareth immediately. And Matthew remembers that on his way out of Nazareth, whether they did all these other things or not, he was looking for a place to be alone. And it says he got into a boat and went to a remote area to be alone. You realize that hopping in a boat was the only way Jesus could quietly move around town. You couldn't take himself and his entourage and walk through town without attracting attention. And so Jesus had to hop in a boat and kind of disappear out on the water to find a place where he might be alone. The place that he's talking about, if he comes out of Nazareth in the way that people did in those times, through the passageways that are still there today, through these giant cliffs that you can look at from the Sea of Galilee, you come out near Tiberias on, the, on sort of the southwestern end of the Sea of Galilee. And the Bible says he gets in a boat and he goes to a remote place. If, if you end up at the place, if we, the place we think of today is actually the right place, it's just a hillside by the water. Probably nothing there at the time. Just... Just a simple hillside covered with grass. He stops, gets out of the boat, and heads up the hill. He just is looking for a place to be alone. If you follow this story, it takes chapters before you find Jesus finally off in Tyre and Sidon, finally away from Jerusalem, away from Israel, away from the people of Israel, away from Judah, away from Nazareth, away from the northern peoples. He's actually gone to the Gentiles of Tyre and Sidon so he can just get away. Jesus spends about three months there. Do not be afraid if you are called to ministry to take time for yourself. Jesus and the disciples, looking for a place, end up in this lonely spot on this hillside near Galilee, near the sea, just literally a few paces away, 100 yards maybe. But the crowds... They heard where he was headed, and they followed on foot from many towns. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them, and healed them. When your heart is breaking, sometimes you are more compassionate. Isn't that true? When you are hurting yourself, you are often more aware of the hurts of other people around you. When things are just going smoothly, you're going about your merry business, sometimes you entirely miss the people around you are hurting. But when you're hurting, it's like the volume is turned up on other people's crying. Other people's tears ring as they drop from their eyes. You hear it, you see it, you feel it. Those of you who are truly empathetic, you understand because you feel this a lot. Most of us who are not, when we, when we are really tuned into our own pain, we recognize other people's pain. When we're broke, we recognize broke people. When we're hurting, we recognize hurting people. That's the way Jesus is. He's, he's feeling deeply harmed, deeply hurt by what he's, what's happened to his cousin. And as he walks out of the boat, climbs up this hill, this massive crowd is there, his reaction, according to the Scripture, is compassion. We don't know if this is one of those moments when tears come to Jesus' eyes, but it is one of his reactions. He has compassion on the crowd. He begins to heal their sickness. Apparently, it's a big crowd. Because the next thing we know, a lot of time has passed. 
what, what he's preached to them, what he's done in the process of healing isn't recorded. None of the disciples take the time to tell us what they did during that day. Just that he healed the sick. That's it. Specifics aren't given. But time has passed and the evening has come. The disciples come to him and say, this is a remote place. This is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the village and buy food for themselves. Reasonable? Don't keep these people here and, and make them have to go home hungry or go home in the dark. Come on, let's, let's get them out of here. Let's, it's getting close to dinner time. Send them off so they can get some food. There's some villages around. They can still hike to a village, get some food. It's okay. Let's, let's send them now. I like these disciples. They have a plan, right? They're, they're thinking ahead. I like people who think ahead. I often need to be following people who are thinking ahead. They have a plan. This is Discipleship 301. Jesus said, that isn't necessary. You feed them. Now we've hit Discipleship 301. You've been watching me. You've seen all the things I've done. You've seen me heal people. You've heard me preach. You've, taught, you've heard what I do. You know what I do. In fact, I've already sent you guys out. You've been all over the country. You've done great things. Your own miraculous activity. You've done all this stuff. There's just a few people here. You feed them. Discipleship 301. Now, if you, read, if you read John's version, John's got some time to reflect on this. And you remember something else that Jesus says. Remember, John has written last. And John says, he said this to test him. Philip's the one who comes. Philip says, hey, uh, time, to, time to get going. I think Philip's the accountant in the group. He's keeping an eye on Judas. He's saying, hey, the, uh, this, uh, this pocketbook seems a little light. Did anybody write this down when we took the offering last time? You guys have to write this down so I can tell whether he's stealing or not. I can't just tell by weight. I think he's the accountant in the group. He's got a plan. He says, hey, send these people home. Jesus says, no, Philip, don't worry. You feed them. ever been in a you feed them sort of situation? The Bible says we are all called to ministry. We are all called to care for the people around us. Have you ever been to the, at a point where you knew you didn't have the resources to cover what needed to be covered? Didn't have the emotional resources, the physical resources? You just didn't have enough heart capacity? You couldn't see how this could be done? Certainly not by you. Yeah, okay, maybe if we send them away, maybe somebody else can figure out how to deal with this. I know we can. I know we do not have the resources. I know we can't do it. You feed them. You feed them. All right. What resources do you have, guys? What do you have to work with? Now, Matthew really shortens and compacts the story. He gives us the Reader's Digest version. We find out that Andrew goes and finds out what resources they have. So Andrew goes out and starts looking through the crowd. Hey, anybody bring food? Did anybody bring food? And all the people are like, no, no. We just kind of heard Jesus was here, so we came running. Anybody? Anybody out there that's got some food? Finally, some little kid. We don't know how old he is. The Bible just talks to him as a young person. Comes forward. Well... My mom packed me a lunch. Awesome. What's in it? Well, I have five pieces of bread. Five pieces of bread. 
Okay. And looks like she put in two fish. Don't think fish. Think little boy's lunch. Think fish. Five pieces of bread and two fish. So Andrew comes back to Jesus. He says, hey, we got five pieces of bread and two fish. You know what Jesus says next? Do you, do you remember the story? He says, tell everybody to sit down. We're good. We got this. Tell them all to sit down. Groups of 50 and 100, tell them to sit down. You got five pieces of bread and two fish. 50 and 100. That's the groups that are sitting down. So they're sitting down. People are sitting down all over the place. You got 5,000 men plus women and children, easily 10,000, maybe 15,000 people, spread out all over the ground. The Bible says the place was grassy and nice. It's picnic time. We got five loaves and three, two fish. We're good to go. And so they're sort of sitting people down. Discipleship 301. You know you don't have the resources, but start prepping. Start prepping because the resources might just come. Prep for the arrival of the resources. Sit everybody down. So people start sitting down. They don't know what's going on. They got a little kid with five loaves and two fish. They didn't bring anything. They weren't prepared for this. These people neglected preparations for themselves, and now Jesus is going to take care of them? How dare he? Aren't you glad Jesus takes care of your lack of preparedness? the story, right? You're already jumping ahead. The disciples start seating everybody. He said, sit them down. So, okay, you guys sit down over there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Too many of you. Scoot over. Get some more. It's 50s and 100. That's all. 120 doesn't count. Get over there. Join that 30. You'll make a 50. And then you start sitting people down. They start following the instructions of Jesus, preparing for a picnic where there's not enough food. going to be a very disappointing picnic when we start passing out these five little pieces of bread. You see, none of us are resource fit. None of us are resource fit. We will always find ourselves under-resourced for the ministry Jesus calls us to. And that is right where he wants us. Because if you are the one who's providing the resources, you don't need to depend on the one who ultimately provides all the resources. They are resource thin, but they're following instructions. They get everybody seated. I I love this story because I love the fact that they had all these people sitting. You know what happens when they tell them to sit down, right? These people start to anticipate food. And so they're actually building anticipation. People's salivary glands are starting to work. People start looking around saying, hey, where's the food? I know you got something stashed in here. So they're looking for a and j here at any moment just to pop out of the ground. You know what happens next? They take him to the little boy's lunch and he, he prays. In my mind, I always have the same picture. Lifting up this little lunch bag. You know those little brown bags? Some grease stains from the fish because you fried those babies. Woo! Little grease sticking out of the side. So you got this little brown bag, little grease stains over here. And it, I mean, this thing is light. It's like a bag of chips. He holds it up and he blesses it. We thank you, Father, for the abundance of your blessings today. Amen. Reaches in the bag. 
pulls out a piece of bread, hands it to the disciples, and another, and another, and another. When he gets to six, people start noticing. That's six. They said, yeah, that's six. Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. He just starts shuffling them like cards, starts throwing them at the disciples. They're coming out now just... The disciples are like catching this bread. It's 20, 30, 40, 100 loaves. Now they've got all this bread. They start taking it to people because it's too much to carry. Now they're overly abundant. Now they're just running over with food. They're taking food to these people. Then out come the fish, greasy little fish, lots of little fish. They're coming out one after another after another all over the place. People are looking for some tartar sauce. It's just coming and coming and coming, and it just gets full. Everybody gets some. It's passed out to 50s. It's passed out to 100s. Cover 10,000 people. This takes some time. You've got 12 disciples covering 10, 10, 15,000 people. It takes some time. I'm pretty sure the disciples start acting like deacons toward the end of this. Here's a pile. Pass it down. Hey, here's some more. Pass it down. And pretty soon people are sitting there with 10, 12 loaves of bread in their, in their skirt. You know, they all wear skirts. So you've got like this nice pocket for a table right there. So there's a, an awesome moment when people are realizing I got a lap full of food out of a little kid's lunch. Discipleship 301. We don't have the resources. We don't have them. Here's the thing this is our calling. Churches are not supposed to make club members. Churches are not supposed to gather groups of people and make them all members of our club. It's not what we do. Jesus said, go ye therefore into all the world. (laughs) I don't know why every time I quote this I have to go to King James. Ye always comes out. And preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. Make disciples. Don't make fans. Don't make followers. Don't make club members. Make disciples. Find groups of people who know they are not the answer, but know where to find it. Because that's a disciple, right? A disciple is a group of people, a person who understands they don't have the resources, but they know where to find the resources. These guys are learning Discipleship 301. I don't have the resources. I don't have the stuff that needs to be brought to this table. But I know who does. A disciple recognizes his incapability and Jesus' capability. He recognizes his lack of resources and Jesus' abundant resources. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly and give it away. Disciples are generous with the resources of God. Disciples are generous with the resources of God. Disciples are ultimately aware that they did not provide the resources. It's a great story. It's a crazy story. You know one of the things I love about this is it's intergenerational. We have an intergenerational church. You heard that term. You know what that term means? That means we're not just trying to get all of one group. We're trying to get all the groups. Do you know what that means? That means that the music we play in our church is guaranteed to irritate you at least some of the time. True, right? For some of you, it's too loud today, too loud. I don't know why Sam keeps turning it up. It's too loud. 
Brother Gene, why is it too slow today? They're dragging. I can't get through these hymns. Intergenerational church. That's who we are. That's what we're trying to be. We're actually trying to irritate you every week. Not really. We're trying to reach your neighbor who's not irritated by what you're irritated by. So if you're irritated, wait. We'll irritate the other guy in a minute. We'll get past this. We're actually trying to communicate with music, not create a generational separation. So when you look at our music, we're simply trying to communicate. We're trying to get the good news out in the words of the scripture. Did you hear what you sang today? Were you listening at all to the words of the song when it said, The wind and waves still know his name? The resources aren't yours, they're his. We're trying to do intergenerational around here. That means everybody gets a piece today. You get a piece of the bread. You get a little of the fish. Everybody gets some. Because we all recognize that we are not the reachers here. Jesus is. Our goal is that when you come here, we see you move along a discipleship growth path where you're not the same six weeks from now that you are today. You're not the same six months from now. You're not the same six years from now. That there's a discipleship transformation in your life where you are becoming more like Jesus over the long run. And you're sitting in your seat saying, man, I don't know, I'm not very much like Jesus. We know. We're not surprised. Because neither are we. I am a preacher. Most of my friends are preachers. Neither are they. But we keep following. We keep trying to learn from him. We keep trying to understand what he's trying to lead us to. And we keep recognizing, I don't have the resources, but I know the guy who does. I love that this is intergenerational ministry. This kid does not know that he is the answer to everybody's problem. There's no way he could. Here's a kid with a lunch who is the resource for 15,000 people and has no idea. There are some leaders, there are some people there, Philip and the other leaders are saying, we do not have the resources, we don't know what to do, we can't buy food for these guys, come on Jesus, we can't do this, send these people away. Do you have? Isn't that an interesting question? I know you don't have food for 5,000 men and their women and children, but what do you have? Would you give that to them? I always love the story here that's not told. Andrew goes and finds this little kid. Hey, buddy, come here. What? Come here, come here. I see you got... I see you got a little pouch. I can see some grease on it. Is, is that your lunch? Yes. Bring it here. Why? I want to look at it. Why? Just bring it here. No. Imagine him running through the crowd. Andrew chasing him. Come on, somebody stop that little kid. 
Some guy grabs him as he goes by, by the back of his little cloak, drags him over there. The little kid's like, no, 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 what does he want? What do you want? Ever tried to withhold your resources from God? Ever had to have one of the disciples drag you over to Jesus and say, this guy's got what you need? Never happens to you, right? None of you do that. I don't know if this is what happened. It's just my crazy imagination. But eventually that guy, that little guy's resources go from his hands to Jesus' hands. It's intergenerational ministry. Here's some guys, some guys who know the problem but have no resources at all. Here's a little guy who has resources but has no idea is the answer to the problem. You know, one of the great things about intergenerational ministry is that someone else probably has resources you're looking for, and they might be a kid. One of the amazing things that often happens in a church where you have intergenerational mixes is that the young people's resources get overlooked. It's a sad reality, and it needs to not happen, but it does. That we don't don't recognize what we have. You often don't recognize that your leaders, your elders, really know what the problem is. They may not know what the solution is, but most of them have been around long enough to understand the problem. A marriage between those two would really be helpful to the future of the kingdom of God on the planet. This is a microcosm of our experience. We never have enough resources. And I think God likes it that way. Because you know what happens when we don't have resources? We start depending on God. The mechanics of all this doesn't change. It hasn't changed for 2,000 years. It, wasn't, it didn't change before Jesus came. It's always been the same. The mechanics are pretty much the same and always will be. A disciple is somebody who starts to follow a master and starts learning from that master and starts emulating that master and starts to then say to other people, hey, I don't have the answers, but I know where to find them. You know what they taught me in college? How to use the library. They just kept asking me questions and sending me to the library. Man, I wish Google had been around. Could have Googled it right there in class. They taught me that I didn't have the resources, but where I could find them. That's the second thing. This last slide is kind of a mechanical thing. It's kind of a little picture of things that are missing. That first one that's supposed to have words in it says that a disciple learns the methods and processes of the leader. Oh! (laughs) And that that disciple then starts to practice those things. 
starts to emulate those things. Learns the methods and then starts to mimic those methods. And then when they start to look like that leader and people say, hey, what's different about you? They say, it's not me. But if you like it, here's the guy you want to follow. That's what I'd like to challenge you again this morning with. That you are called to learn and understand what Jesus would do with you. What he would do in your situation. What he would do with your resources. And then begin to manage things in the way he managed. To emulate the way he behaved. To do the things that he did. You're, they're all through the scripture. You can figure out most of the time what he would do. What, what would Jesus do here? And then to come to maturity that recognizes that the best thing we can do for the rest of our lives with this peace that we have is to point other people to Jesus. To say, I know where the answer is. I'm not the answer, but I know the answer. And it's Jesus. We complicate this a lot. But does this look doable to you? That's the call. That's the call if you're 10. And that's the call if you're 90. And you're challenged. And you have a goal. Let's pray. Father God.